It depends on the size of the chair. Uh, I'll cheat a little bit. The big electron, the big electron. So I have cheated very badly, you see. Of course you feel it. Now what do you want to know? What I want to know is what's going on. I think it's time to blow this thing, get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, it's jam. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a great show for you tonight. Let's get right to it. Welcome to The Big Electron here on KCU 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening. I'm Jackie. I'm Anahita. I'm Adam. I'm Madeline. And we're glad that you're here on this Sunday evening with us. Uh, just a reminder that if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so by calling here on studio at 573-882-8262. You can also text us at that same number. You can find us on our Facebook page where we are, The Big Electron. And you can also email us thebigelectron.kcou uh, at gmail.com so many options so many options or you can also like call us personally <laughs> yeah if you like, know us yeah because most most other people that listen to us know us yeah <laughs> <laughs> thank you mom <laughs> okay so today we have a really cool show that we're excited we're really excited about because we never get to do this mm-hmm. um, so I would say it's the most important show because you learn science and you learn about us. Oh, <laughs> if you didn't know a lot about us again, because yeah. you're family, so <laughs> two of our personal favorite things. Absolutely. So. Yeah. so, what we're doing today is we're talking about our own research. As you're aware, we are graduate students here at the university, and um, we do research on. Not on Sundays. <laughs> well, uh, not, no. on, well yeah. not on Sundays from 5 to 6 p.m. Not, not at this exact time. We're Correct. Not at this moment doing research. But we are prepared but, to talk about it. Yep. Yeah, we yeah. are prepared to talk about it. So we're going to start off with Madeline. Yeah. What is it that you do? Okay, so I am. I study genetics. I'm in Chris Larson's lab here on campus. And we study a disease called spinal muscular atrophy. And I'll get into that a little bit more later, but I kind of want to start the story with telling you about the protein that we study. So this is called SMN protein, survival of motor neuron. Mm -hmm. And it's a super important protein. Uh, One of the hints that we have that it's really important is that every organism between yeast and humans has this gene. Yeah, so even yeast that are single cells, Mm You know, they, they have to do everything within one cell that they could possibly ever need to do. And they also have this protein. So it's indispensable. It's indispensable entirely. And we know that if we knock out that gene in any of those species, it is lethal at a super early age. Um, wow. Early in development, the organism just dies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what is interesting about it is that that is the causative gene i mean it's kind of an interesting gene just in general right because it's so important but the reason we kind of got clued in to be paying attention to this gene is that it is the causative gene behind a disease um that is obviously really important to a lot of people called spinal muscular atrophy Mm -hmm. so that's sma 
it may sound kind of confusing if I talk about SMN, which is the protein, SMA, which is the disease. I'll try to, you know, be very clear about that. Um, but so what's interesting about SMA is that it is a neurodegenerative, neurodegenerative disease. So that means the motor neurons that control your muscles, um, they slowly die, which then in turn causes your muscles to just be super weak and um, you can't function quite as well. Um, people might be more familiar with ALS. Did you guys do the ALS challenge a couple years ago? With the bucket? Yeah, it's the water the bucket, bucket and the ice. I, yeah. I watched many people do it. Yeah, <laughs> so um, ALS is a, also a neurodegenerative disease. So mm -hmm. they're kind of similar in that regard, but different genetic makeup. And also ALS is well known because there's like really famous people that get ALS, Lou Gehrig. Um, Stephen Hawking, but SMA primarily affects kids. And so um, these kids will usually die, most of them die by age two. So is there a direct link between the two? Like children who have SMA, will they mo are they more likely to grow up to have ALS? Nope, they're, they're um, genetically separate entirely. It's just that the it, when we look at the symptoms, they look kind of similar. Okay. So that's because in both cases, the symptoms are being caused because the motor neurons are dying, but they're dying for different reasons. Mm. Part, if I may clarify, I think uh, part of the reason that sometimes there's famous people who get ALS is that they've lived to They've lived to the point of famous, famous yeah. Yeah, and when so. you're a kid, you never get that chance. So it's it's so that's one of the main distinctions also that SMA it starts as a kid whereas LAS you start developing once you're an adult. Yep, later you in live life. you live fine yep. and then and then later it hits. Yep. Okay. So, um, but in both cases, again. So what happens with the kids? Can, yeah. Uh, do they have a good, like, are they able to live so long So most enough, of or? the patients are infants when they are diagnosed. So under six months old and they won't make it to age two. It's very, very mm. severe. Yeah. Um, so again, their motor neurons die, which um, causes their the muscles mostly in their core area. So the intercostals um, that are responsible for breathing and um, coughing and stuff like that. So if they can breathe okay, they sometimes can't cough and they'll get an infection that they can't um, get rid of. So it's a really, really serious disease. Um, and so that's why we care about this SMN protein because that's what's ultimately responsible for SMA, the disease. Okay. So, um, we know that uh, the cause, if, if we, so it's really crazy because there's this genetic um, situation in humans that's unique um, where every other species, if you knock out SMN, the organism dies at a very early age. Mm -hmm. And in humans, if this, if we're talking no SMN, I'm talking it's a miscarriage. The, the child is never born. So the difference between that kind of miscarriage situation and the fact that we have this disease is that we don't have no SMN protein. We have low levels of SMN protein. And that's because, like I said, there's this crazy genetic series of events where we have a backup copy of SMN, which is convenient, I guess. Um, it kind of doesn't, uh, it doesn't have to do much most of the time because most of us have a fully capable version of our SMN1 uh, gene. But if we lose that, we're now relying on this SMN2 gene that is really only producing 10% of that protein that we need. 
So that so that not quite as functional backup gene is what's mm-hmm. making the difference between us not even being aware of this, like there's yep. a miscarriage very early in development and, and actually, you know, having a live birth, yes. you know, child, which will then get the disease. So just that extra bit of time. That, that extra bit of protein, yep, yeah. it, yep, causes that extra bit of time. And we know that if they have um, a couple more copies of that SMN2, mm-hmm. they get even more time. So then you have, instead of them being an infant when they're diagnosed, maybe they're a teenager. Mm-hmm. And instead of dying really early, they are in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a range of severity based mm-hmm. on your genetic makeup and how many copies of this backup gene you happen to have. Is this a... I guess I have two questions. One is, how is this diagnosed? Is it just like you start seeing a change in the baby and you're like, it's obviously there's something yeah, wrong. Yeah, something's wrong. Um, we kind of, it can be called floppy baby, floppy baby syndrome because uh-huh. yeah, these babies just can't hold their neck up. They can't hold their arms up. Oh, okay. um, yeah, so it's a really sad situation. And then when you mentioned that you have this backup gene, can we say something like, it's a dominant versus a recessive gene. Is this even part of it or is this uh, something something else? So the disease itself is autosomal recessive. Um, and uh, so I'm not sure what you mean by... So it's recessive. The, the, okay. the disease is recessive. So like you and your um, partner could be totally healthy and have no family history of that. But if you both happen to carry this silent mutation, it's not a silent mutation technically, mm-hmm. It's um, but you wouldn't it's see it. It's recessive, um, but still your child would be at, cha- at risk of developing this disease mm-hmm. given just the genetic gamble Since that happens every time two. you have a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, okay. So we have this important protein and um, what's really interesting is that even though this, we know that this protein is really important in every single cell because it's important even in yeast. But, so you would think that if we had low levels of that as a human, we would maybe have defects in all of our organs, you know, even in your liver and your heart and your kidney and your skin and all of your, your cells should be affected by that. But really it's the motor neurons. And we're not really sure why motor neurons are more susceptible to this low mm-hmm. level um, of protein, whether that's that maybe they just have really specific needs and that they have a higher requirement for this than other cells do, or that um, there could be um, an additional function that motor neurons have that the other cells just don't need. Um, so I'll go more into that uh, in a little bit. So my project specifically uh, uses gene therapy type Mechanisms. So we know that if we take a virus and we gut out its viral genes, the, its whole genetic um, coding region, and we put in whatever gene we want. So in this case, we're going to put in the human version of the SMN gene. And we give that to a mouse that is a mouse model of SMA. So normally those would die by 14 days. They get really, really weak and they die within two weeks. And if we give them the human SMN gene back using that virus, they do great. They live past 250 days. Um, They are 
That's fat pretty good, and right? happy. That's really mm -hmm. awesome. Okay. Um, yeah. So and they're healthy. They're healthy. And they have no issues. When this happened, the scientists they were like, "No, we must have done it wrong. Uh -huh. these, these sick <laughs> wow. were these mice were probably never sick. We uh -huh. had they had to like regenotype to to say no, they were sick." And we made them better. So they had to re-verify awesome. because it was such a good result. Yeah. That, was yeah. this in your lab? Or no, no, was no. This someone else. This was, okay. um, yeah, in like 2012. Okay. So there's a, a fair number of labs working on this yeah. same kind of work. Yeah. And actually, yeah. so that exciting result is now in a clinical trial, which I'm really excited about, That's and awesome. that would be a topic for a whole nother day. Um, I actually just wrote a poem about it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'm super excited about it. Um, maybe I'll post the link to that on um, on the what the Facebook. But um, so yeah, my, definitely. Yeah. So we use that same mechanism. So take out the make a virus that encodes whatever gene we want mm -hmm. and put it into the mice and mm -hmm. see what happens. So I have. Um, these different, the different versions of SMN that come from different species. So there's some from frogs and fish and- I was gonna ask that if yeah. everything from yeast to humans has this. Yeah, then are they all the same? Exactly. <laughs> so if we look at the sequence, they're not the same. Hmm. So we kind of wondered, well, is there a functional difference? And so using this way of looking at it, we could kind of tell. And so what I found was that the sequences from frogs and fish, mm -hmm. they seemed to work pretty well. The mice uh, gained a bunch of weight and lived longer. Um, but anything that was from an invertebrate, so I had- It was um, a happy, fatty mouse. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had worms and flies and worms? yeast. Worms? Yeah, C. elegans, oh. um, a common model organism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they didn't rescue. Clearly I'm a chemist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so we were shocked too. Like when when these ones, when the, the one from the fish worked, we thought, wow, that's, we that's are going to have to go lower. We thought, we thought that was not going to work. Um, wow. So now I'm trying to parse apart, like between what worked and what didn't work. So between mm -hmm. the vertebrates that worked mm -hmm. and the invertebrates that didn't, what's the difference? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm comparing the sequences and I have this region that I think, based on the sequences, is probably really important. So now I'm trying to add that region back in mm -hmm. and see, well, now, you know, my worm sequence, which didn't rescue. If I add that region back in, does it now rescue? Because that would be awesome. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> um, and then kind of the counter of that is, can I take the normal human full-length SMN that we know rescues really well, mm -hmm. and if I just like tweak the tiny part of that, that would be responsible for the protein interactions mm -hmm. um, that, that that region is responsible for, does it now not rescue? So th this is helping you to figure out in really high detail or high level of detail just what is going wrong under yeah. conditions. Yeah, and it's helping us figure out the difference between what is important in every single cell in the body mm -hmm. versus what is important specifically in the motor neurons because it's really hard to tell because the protein is so important. Yeah. Um, it's hard to tell if what and, the effects we're seeing uh -huh. are because of motor neuron specific or, um, uh, improvements uh, or just because you no, now no longer have every cell that's dying. Mm -hmm. So, um, and also because that can take you from being a miscarriage to being detected in infants to possibly be detected at a later time and so on and so forth. Yeah. So we because really need like to know small details of. Of the protein? Of protein. Yeah, so so my research isn't necessarily therapeutic based. Uh -huh. It's it's trying to figure out what is the well, protein right. doing. Uh -huh. um, and that would help us figure out, well, is there maybe there's a drug 
that helps this protein do this one specific job. But we've been overlooking mm -hmm. that because there's some people that say, no, 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 that that function's not as important as the other one. Mm -hmm. um, so my research could imply that like, no, it really is more important. We should be paying attention to it. That's awesome. Yeah. Cool. And then there's also yes. this like um, kind of side thing where I suspect that there's a difference between invertebrates and vertebrates mm -hmm. in their requirements for this, mm. this um, gene, which sounds really nitpicky and like who would care because you know, it's not like if a fly has SMA, honestly, I do not care. Yeah, you know, we're, we're there's gonna be 300 more. We're not currently working on a cure <laughs> yeah, for flies. No, so, uh. but um, the, so the reason I care is that there's all this research happening in flies. Is that a valid model? Or oh, is yeah. that just kind of us tricking ourselves into thinking that we're seeing SMA type effects, even though um, what we're really seeing is just kind of a general effect of just this really important protein. So I don't know. We'll see. I want to try to get all the questions answered, but I'm running out of time. <laughs> yeah, that's. The I also want to graduate. So it's <laughs> kind of a catch 22. Well, that sounds pretty cool. And it's, it's definitely something that, you know, has an impact and it has something um, that is that, you know, as, as detail specific as it is, then it, it actually, eventually it will come up to. Yeah. Something uh, that will something affect, affect people. people yeah. Which is what I came to grad school for. I knew I, we call this translational research because, you know, it's taking the basic research involving like proteins and how they work and stuff mm -hmm. and then moving it into something that would actually affect people or, you know, some other, some other things. So we mm -hmm. call that translational research. Cool. All right. With that, let's move on to some other stuff that we do. Uh, Anahita. Yes. So I am really excited to talk about my research. Um, I'm going to try to back it up mm -hmm. as much as I can and baby step into it. So we have these proteins in our bodies that um, where their happy homes are are within membranes, like within a cell membrane. Okay. And these are called transmembrane proteins. <laughs> I know we're really creative <laughs> and, um, or I guess membrane proteins in general, but if they span across the membrane, then they're transmembrane proteins. And, um, so the general rule about proteins is how, what shape they take, what configuration they're in will dictate how they function. Mm -hmm. And these are super important proteins in our bodies. They they do all sorts of things. And actually, I think it's the top 10 drugs by sales of like the past three years have almost all targeted membrane proteins. Interesting. Well, what's really interesting about that is we don't really know what they do because we can't look at what shape they're in. Oh. So for a lot of these drugs, we're just kind of throwing stuff at them and seeing the result we want. And we may have an idea of why they work the way, why that works, mm -hmm. but without actually seeing them, we really don't know how they work. So would that lead you more likely to have maybe unintended consequences if you can't accurately predict like why it's doing what it's doing? Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> that could be, that could be something that happens. Okay. So what, oh, go ahead. So when, when you say transmembrane, um, the reason why we care about drugs that have the capability of going or, or proteins that have the capability of going past the membrane is so that we can get stuff into the cell, right? Cause the membrane is outside of the cell. Um, and so if we want something to go into yes, the cell, uh, then that's why we want stuff to go in. Yes. But also, cell. uh, 
sometimes trans- membrane proteins catalyze reactions at the cell membrane. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yes. And why do we care about that? Because we- There's lots of things <laughs> that could go wrong. Well, it's just a, a further investigation of how proteins work within our bodies. Because it would be neat to know. <laughs> yeah, I want to well. step away from saying it's science for the sake of science. There are very specific examples. For example, Alzheimer's disease. Okay. Ah. We know that the protein that causes Alzheimer's disease is a membrane protein. The part of it that causes Alzheimer's is a membrane protein. Mm-hmm. We get a general idea of, you know, a certain cleavage happens- but we don't really understand why that happens Mm -hmm. and no Mm -hmm. one's ever able to look at it directly, Mm -hmm. mostly because it has this messy membrane around it and all the techniques that we traditionally have of looking at proteins are gold standards of looking at proteins, which are like x-ray crystallography or using NMR. They don't work well. NMR is nuclear magnetic resonance. Yes. (laughs) Um, These, these are techniques that, kind of require whatever you're looking at to be still. Okay. Yeah. And so we want, but proteins move around in our bodies. We want to see their function. We want to see what they look like as they move around. So there's this um, new technique that's being developed called deep UV resonance Raman spectroscopy. (laughs) I know that's like all jargon. And by being developed, it means you. Yes. <laughs> Me and my group are working on it. You we have one of these it. lasers. Okay. So awesome. just to break down those words real quick, spectroscopy is the interaction of light and matter. So you can think of it as looking at the shadow. Okay. So we're shining a light on the protein and pretty much looking at kind of like what the shadow looks like. Okay. And that shadow we call our spectra. Okay. Um, and then I said it was resonance Raman. Raman spectroscopy is, is a vibrational spectroscopy. So we're in the form of light providing energy to the protein and it's kind of shaking, it's vibrating around. Okay. And so the shadow that we're seeing or the spectra is what wiggling around it's doing. So does that help it be like more 3D if you're, if it's shaking, like, does that help you get more views of it? Um, No, that wouldn't be the goal of it shaking. It's that we have, we being scientists Mm -hmm. have characterized all the different shakes Okay. And so I know if this, if X shake is happening, it's because Y exists. So okay. that's useful information to know what Into, type of shaking it's doing. To like figuring out what the shadow looks like and why it looks like the way it looks. Okay. 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 And then. Especially because it's constantly moving and that's what we want right. to see. Right. We want to see this shapes. dynamic mm-hmm. moving yeah, So system. it's going to be doing some shaking anyway. So. <laughs> yeah. And then so deep UV, that first part is just the, the excitation wavelength. Like I said, we provide it energy. The speed of that light that's providing energy is in the deep UV range, so mm-hmm. just under 200 nanometers, but UV goes from about 380 to 10 nanometers, oh, wow. so we're <laughs> kind of like dead in the middle, which is considered deep UV. Okay. So I am develop me personally, I'm developing um, a, I used a model system to kind of figure out more about the different shadows. Okay. So when we talk about shapes of proteins, there are three that we're really talking about. Um, You can have an alpha helix, which looks like a slinky. It's just a spiral. Mm -hmm. You can have a beta sheet, which is folded back and forth over itself. Mm -hmm. Or you can have disordered, which is anything else. (laughs) And so I have a, when I said I have a model system, I have a model alpha helix or a model slinky that lives within a membrane that I get to look at its shadow of. And I, I either edit the membrane uh-huh. or I edit 
the specific, the amino acids that build up the protein. Okay. Uh, one at a time to see how that changes the structure. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So it, it's hard for me to not say that it's science for science sake because it is developing this laser that will be used for looking at things like how Alzheimer's happens. Mm-hmm. But in itself, it's research still. Yeah, yep. it's just still so far away from those things right. that you can't necessarily see the farther outcomes. Because you're yeah. developing the instrument. Yeah, yeah. so That's you're really developing cool. that technology so that somebody else can somebody use else it. can use it and then they get the fancy results and they get media attention and stuff. <laughs> right. And you're like, I did that first. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I always joke that, you know, so there are all of these like Twitter things that are like, explain your research in one sentence. Mm-hmm. Mine would be, I sit in the dark and look at a slinky. <laughs> Do you ever send your proteins down the stairs? Uh, like a slinky. <laughs> no, well, okay. you know, I've dropped them before. So, so yes. So so yes. yes I just, too small for me to see the actual things that are going on. But yeah, there there is a whole spectrum of, of different kinds of research that goes from the very translational, like this mm-hmm. is going to be directly mm-hmm. applied to mm-hmm. medicine or, right. or agriculture or whatever mm-hmm. it may be, like what Madeline was describing. And the... Uh, to a degree, more more basic research of the kind that that mm-hmm. Anahita is describing, but all of it is vital to the process. Mm-hmm. You don't uh, you don't have translational science without no. something to translate. Absolutely, uh, or yeah, you, w- without the technology. The term oh, basic it. science is kind of almost unfortunate because that makes it sound simple, yeah. and that's definitely and not, not what I'm no. oh saying. It's so just the foundation. I, I so wish that it was. <laughs> So to get a little more specific about the actual research I'm doing, so proteins are made up of amino acids, and I have a 19 amino acid sequence that I'm looking at Mm -hmm. um, that forms a helix when it's in a membrane. And I change one of those amino acids and have to pretty much assume, which I verify through other checks, Mm -hmm. that the only thing that's changing is that one amino acid. Mm -hmm. So I have to spend, you know, a day verifying that, the only thing that really changed is that one amino acid. And then I get to start doing the research. Yeah. And then that in itself takes a day or two. Yeah. And then I get to analyze that data and that in itself takes a day or two. But then I have to do that three times and that was just one placement. <laughs> and so I have to add another one and that was for one amino acid. And now I try another one. It's mm-hmm. just easy for time to add up. What's up? Um, so do we know that this um, slinky... Did we do x-ray crystallography to figure out it was a slinky? So the slinky was uh, a system that was developed by a lab that did verify it using x-ray crystallography. Okay. But the way that I check it's a slinky is there's another kind of spectroscopy called circular dichroism. Okay. And it um, has very distinctive spectra or those shadow Mm -hmm. Um, features for if it's a slinky or if it's a sheet folded over itself or if it's anything else. So I kind of do this and that's an overview check. It'll give you a general idea of what it looks like. And I use that to check that it's a slinky. So there are other ways to see these things. You're just developing a new one to help add, you know, much more sensitive technique. So when I change that one amino acid, I will see a difference in the um, circular dichroism spectroscopy, mm-hmm. but with that itself, there's no way I can attribute the change to the amino acid. Okay. 
And not just that, it's just a change. I know a difference happened. Okay. But with the laser, I can say, ah, that's moving from a slinky to the sheet being folded. Okay. Or I can say it's moving from the slinky to the disordered, which is anything else. Mm -hmm. So when you mentioned about proteins, how do you get proteins? Is this something that, you know, you can just order or how do we get all of that? So I actually do order my proteins. Okay. That's nice. Yes. <laughs> so you can grow them up in E. coli, uh -huh. <laughs> which is a really stinky, long process. <laughs> but um, I personally... So there are ways. There are ways. But I... And I, I have thought about experimenting with growing up my protein. Mm -hmm. um, but... That in itself requires mm -hmm. a whole bunch of other stuff in the lab. Right. That. And it's kind of nice to have it be clean from the company. They that, guarantee that, that, you know... That's, that's exactly what, what I was ordered. going to say is that I am... It remove it's one control. I'm yep. removing one variable by somebody making it and characterizing it that yes, this is the sequence I have. Yeah. Yeah, it's great when there's specialists available to do exactly that. Kind yes. Of work that <laughs> and it cuts so again because it cuts. You have that technology developed already, so why bother in making that unless that? Is yeah, exactly. We we all benefit from doing research where we don't constantly have to reinvent the wheel for <laughs> yes. certain right. aspects of Absolutely. our work that others can and do very yeah. well. There are members of my group that do grow up their own proteins. But um, it's mostly because it would be so much more, it's just so much more cost effective for okay. them to grow up their mm -hmm. proteins because of the sheer quantity they use. What's really great about the laser is I don't have to use very much. It's, um, it's, in, it's in the most natural environment that oh. the protein can be in mm -hmm. while still being within a synthetic system. And it, um, it's, easier to, it's easy to control. Nice. Yeah. That's really neat stuff. Yeah. Thank it's, you. I think it's really cool. I really like my environmental studies. So I, um, if, if I still have a minute, I can real quick say. Um, so usually when people look at membrane proteins, they um, make a synthetic membrane okay. using detergents. Okay. So detergents have these big, um, big head groups is what we call them that like water. Mm -hmm. And these long tail groups that don't like water. And so the tail groups like to organize towards each other and the head groups are on the outside, kind of like a ball Okay. with all the tails on the inside and the membrane will be where all the tails are. Okay. I'm sorry, the membrane protein will be where all the tails are. And so this is the system that we say, oh, that's the same thing as a cell. But cells have a <laughs> lot of stuff. Cell membranes have a <laughs> lot of stuff going on in them. There's cholesterol. They're actually... Um, Lipids, which have smaller head groups okay. than um, detergent does, and usually longer and more complicated tail groups. So, although there's this a similar structure where the tails all organize towards each other and the heads are all outside, mm -hmm. it's really not a mimic. It's okay. not a true mimic, I should say. And so, I've been comparing these two on the laser, cool, and showing that you know. While we can kind of get the idea of what a structure looks like for a membrane protein in a detergent, it's not saying what that protein looks like when it's, when it's in the cell membrane. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. So it's a comparison there also of best ways, best practices? Yeah, it's a, I would say method building mm -hmm. for okay. other, I guess, research groups, but without the laser. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they would switch over. <laughs> That sounds pretty neat. Okay, so with that, we're going to go on a short musical break. You're listening to The Big Electron on KCU 88.1 FM. 
All right, welcome back to The Big Electron here on KCU 88.1 FM. Or if you're listening to us on our podcast, um, thanks for listening. So we're talking about our own research. Now we're going to move on to Adam. What is it that you do? Well, I do stuff. Um, just to oh, that's good. Just to be more specific about that. Like all four of us who are here in this studio, uh, I'm a graduate student. Uh, my name's Adam here at, here at the University of Missouri. And... Um, I'm a biologist or, or something like that <laughs> in training. And um, what I study is chromosomes. Uh, so my, my work is very much on the basic research side of things, which is um, probably even more basic than, than what Anita was talking about in the sense that the stuff that I study is a long way from being directly applicable to, to medical issues. This is still just basically trying to understand what we are and why we are that way. So this Who is... Who are we is really? A, yeah, sort of uh, not not that not much that past philosophical. philosophical okay, yeah, okay. But <laughs> somewhere in the ballpark of that, though, yeah. Um, so what I study is chromosomes. So you may remember um, seeing pictures in uh, any different level of biology classes of uh, the middle of a cell, which has all these X-shaped, uh, you know, blue objects that show up <laughs> mm -hmm. in these things. And those are... And your... that's how you make X-Men. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> how you make X-Men, exactly. Um, but we all have X-shaped chromosomes, and we all have 46 of them in each one of our cells. Uh, and each of those 46 chromosomes is unique, but it goes with a partner. So you have 23 unique chromosomes that you inherited from your mom and 23 that you inherited from your dad. And they go together like a pair. And then when you have uh, a child, you will pass on 23 of those, one from each pair chosen at random to go on to that child. Mm -hmm. So that's how we end up mixing up genetics and so on from generation to generation. That's why you don't look identical to either of your parents. Mm -hmm. Um, so you're like one fourth so, your grandpa. Exactly. Exactly. So this is how every large living organism works. Um, so the, um, it's really hard for me not so, to make a joke. Sorry. There's a lot of people. <laughs> my apologies for the hesitation. There's a lot of people trying to make jokes about being their own grandpa right now. And it's somewhat distracting if I, if I, I'm sorry. But, uh, all right. All right. So let's get that out of the way. Um, so everybody listening right now has 46 chromosomes, mm -hmm. or maybe you don't. And that's what I study. I study what happens when you don't. Um, so sometimes we inherit an extra copy from one parent of one of our chromosomes mm -hmm. um, or, or are missing one from that set. This process can go wrong, and that happens uh, fairly often. Mm -hmm. So probably the most famous uh, example in a, in a human being is what you would know as Down syndrome, mm -hmm. or some people refer to it by the medical term, which is trisomy 21. And what trisomy 21 means is that the 21st largest chromosome, the one that we gave the number 21 to, mm -hmm. um, there's three copies of that instead of two. So one of the parents has passed along an extra, and this produces down syndrome, which causes uh, certain developmental conditions um, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. you know, heart-related conditions. It's, yeah. it's rather broadly has, a, has an effect uh, on many systems in the body. It's not the only trisomy that can uh, exist in, in a human being. There are two others that commonly occur, trisomy 18, which is called Edwards syndrome, mm -hmm. and trisomy 13, which is called Patau syndrome. But those are quite a bit more rare because... 
their effects are much more severe than Down syndrome. And okay. we rarely see uh, a child uh, born live with those conditions. Um, not that rare, unfortunately, but when it, mm-hmm. when it does happen, um, frequently they unfortunately do not survive uh, childhood. And all the other chromosomes, if you were to have a trisomy of those, if you were to have an extra copy of, say, chromosome number one, the biggest one that you have, that is lethal so early in development that we never see a live birth under those conditions. So having an extra copy of a chromosome is very bad for you. We've known that for a long time. We've known that this has a negative impact even before we understood that chromosomes were where the genes were, for wow. example. Uh, like for about 100 years, I think going back to the 1920s, they've been, they've been doing that stuff um, and knew that it had effects. But it was never and has never been entirely clear why mm-hmm. at a molecular level. Why is this bad to have an extra copy? I mean, mm-hmm. you'd think you're not missing anything. Yeah. Right. You should you'd be think good. Yeah, you'd rather just have an extra one. Yeah. Like, yeah. You can just... It's like... It's something goes wrong, they get another one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you, it's actually not entirely clear, mm-hmm. even now to us, why that is the mm-hmm. case. Um, one theory that was sort of the default assumption for a very long time is just you have regulated amounts of all these proteins that are coded for on these genes. And if you have an extra copy of the gene, well, you're probably going to have extra protein made from it. And maybe that's some sort of intolerable level of those proteins. And um, And what we can... it's a whole bunch of them. And it's it's not even like just having one at a time. Yeah. It's not just, you know, you have one extra copy of one gene, so Mm -hmm. you have more of this one protein. It's hundreds or thousands of genes that occur along the length of this huge DNA molecule that we call a chromosome. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's a massive scale dosage change and, uh, that would in theory be enough to cause many negative effects, although it'd be hard for us to parse out which one causes what Mm -hmm. turns out though. It's not really that simple at all. Um, there are many genes, um, that are affected that way that do increase with the dosage, but there's also a pretty large subset that don't do anything. You can give them extra copies of the gene and nothing happens. It continues to express the exact same amount of the protein that it wants to as it would have if you had two copies or one copy. And that's kind of a mystery. And trying to figure out um, that phenomenon and what causes it is is a big part of what I do. And for me, there's an even more exciting part of this, which is that um, there are genes on the other chromosomes, you know, the ones that you still have two copies of Mm -hmm. um, that are... Um, uh, affected by the change of copy number on something else. Wow. Like, let's say you have an extra copy of chromosome three. Um, there's some gene that happens to lie on chromosome number seven that's going to be upregulated or downregulated mm-hmm. or changed in some way that doesn't seem to have any direct relationship to the dosage. And wow. trying to figure out why we consistently see that happen is is the nature of the project that I work on. So, so, so I don't, I'm sorry, you may, not, I don't know if you know this, um, but so sometimes you get you, like, if everything's happy, then you get one from your mom, one from your dad. Yes. So, but if everything's unhappy, you either don't get one of those or you might get one from your dad and like two from your mom. Right. Um, do we know about when you get like none from your dad and two from your mom? Is that also a problem or is that just like everything's good and we is wouldn't that, really. Is I that even possible? That, yeah. that I suppose in theory could happen, but I would think that'd be so rare statistically. I'm not aware of any cases of that that we can 
say, like just having some background in, mm -hmm. in reading the yeah, previous I, scientific yeah, studies I in this field. I figured that was kind of out of I'm your direct sure, field. But. Well, no, it's actually, that's actually pretty close to my direct mm. field. I'm, okay. I'm, I guess my answer is I don't think there are any studies that have looked at that, at least not in an animal model, gotcha. because that would be so vanishingly rare that I don't mm -hmm. think there are any cases of it to study. I see. Um, but there certainly each one can happen, but not both at the same time mm -hmm. uh, where you... Yeah. So um, <laughs> we, have, we have a raised hand. Another student. In yes, the class. Jackie. <laughs> so you were mentioning, or actually, I, I had this question: How do you study this? Because, uh, for example, Madeline was saying, "Well, she uses animal models." Anahita was saying, "I use lasers and um, proteins mm -hmm. that you can buy yeah. from stuff." Um, how does one study? your project of genetics, because Madeline is also kind of genetics. You still yeah, study but totally genes, different. but it's yeah. totally different. Yeah. Well, obviously, we use corn. <laughs> obviously. Uh, the best way to model Down syndrome, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I, I apologize. Yeah, it's, it's the exact opposite of obvious, uh, but we use corn. <laughs> we use plant. Okay. Because here's, here's the thing. The basic math and physics behind the copy number changes that we're talking about can apply to any species at any level um, that has two chromosomes mm -hmm. in pairs like that, one from mom, one from dad. And that's just as true of plants as it is of animals. And So all really animals and all plants have two copies? Not, not all, but the vast majority. Okay. For um, example, strawberries have like a ton, right? Yeah, I don't even there's, know the number. There's but just yeah. other things that have a bunch for whatever there, reason. There are some that have but most numbers. Of them, but for example, if you have a... There are some plants that have four of everything, like they get two from mom and two from dad that are in the same set, mm -hmm. and some that have six, oh. we get three mm -hmm. from each. Oh. Those are actually healthier as a whole. If you get a whole extra set from oh, somebody, yeah. than than having one missing, mm -hmm. there's some issue oh. there about they have to be in balance with each other, and they, we believe that's why that phenomenon exists. Um, but yeah, most the vast majority have two: one from mom, one from dad. Okay, and so um, we're able to. Uh, manipulate uh, corn genetics in such a way that we can re recreate this phenomenon for the same chromosome over and over again. In fact, we can even look at the same chromosome at different dosages. Like mm. we can say, this chromosome in corn, the one number 10, for example, we mm -hmm. can have identical sibling plants that have one copy of it or two copies of it or three or four mm. and see how all of the genes on that chromosome are affected, how all the genes everywhere else in the genome are affected, all the other chromosomes, and look at it consistently. So, uh, uh, as I mentioned, it's so it's such basic work. This is not something we can mm -hmm. directly take a medical application from a corn plant. But it, right now in this particular phenomenon, we're still at the stage of just trying to figure out how it works. Mm -hmm. So using corn to recreate this uh, over and over again is a really good way to look at it at a very basic chemical level. When you say over and over again... What is the time frame of that? Oh, mm -hmm. corn's slow. Oh, That's it's so slow. That's what I was going to ask. How yeah. long does it take you to go from like plant to study? Um, it depends on what level we're talking about. Let's say a decade. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, for example. So are you planting graduating. corn that in a decade somebody else will be looking at? Yes, I am. Wow. That's awesome. Oh, well, and somebody and did I, it for me, of course. Yeah. You know, the, the, guy I, the guy I work for, who is a, who is a brilliant uh biologist and longtime corn genetics researcher has been doing this since he was in graduate school about 40 years ago. Oh, wow. And he's 
not that he started so he's on the like exact same <laughs> work, but this is this is a phenomenon that he's been studying for a very long time. And some no. of the material that we use was developed um, in labs even long before that. Mm -hmm. Some of the specific stuff I'm using was developed in uh, in the same lab as myself 20 years ago. Wow. So wow. a lot of this stuff is very long-term stuff. I happen to be coming along at a time when we have technology that allows us to look at every gene and how much it's mm -hmm. expressed at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's a process called RNA sequencing. Mm -hmm. And it, as I mentioned, it allows us to look at every gene at once. All the previous studies in this, including okay. many done in the same lab that I work in now, were done using a few genes at a time. Just wow. kind of by necessity, because that was what the technology allowed. Right. Right. So it's really just, I lucked out at, to come along at this time where we nice. can look at this phenomenon and really look at what's happening with everything and see if we can parse out what's important and what isn't for this process. Cool. So, Do the corn like it when you tinker with their chromosomes? No. <laughs> they don't like it. Uh, they are not healthy if you give them extra chromosomes, but they're probably healthier than an animal would be. Sure. So they can at least last long enough for us to study yeah. them. That's a big part of why we use it, is mm -hmm. that we can mess with their genomes a lot more than we can mess with the average animal genome. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and they don't complain, mm -hmm. or at least not, not as loud. You're, uh. You say you're far away from it going to a human study, obviously. But well, yeah. when, when it jumps to the next step, <laughs> would it be like rat studies, you think? Difficult to even yeah. say. Yeah. Uh, this, we're too far away. We're, this is so far into the realm of basic research. It's what it's what some of us, including myself, mm. call blue skies research. This is mm. this is stuff we would love to figure out, mm. but the downstream consequences of it is unpredictable. Mm -hmm. It's it is something. I mean, this is a legitimate human medical condition. For mm -hmm. example, it does matter, and we do want to figure out how it works, but it's not possible to say so whether this far. will ever result in some kind of medical mm -hmm. treatment. It is uh, something we very much want to know, and we we just have to hope for the best in terms of what uh, what sci-fi uh, yeah. <laughs> medical treatments it's might result. It's just kind of cool that we're all in, so far, us three have, are in like three very distinct yep. uh, parts of the scientific process. Yeah, yeah. So mm -hmm. mine is, so uh, as we talked about, I'm way into the basic. I'm uh, closer, but still basic. Yeah, and, and Madeline's then. is quite yep. translational right directly going to the clinical type of stuff so so that's what i've been doing here for the last oh i have no idea how long i've been here now but, <laughs> hasn't yeah. been that long adam but i would like to point out that there's been times where we leave the show and then adam is like well i have to go uh, water the plants water the <laughs> corn and so yeah, that's, that's why i wanted you to say uh that you use corn um it is really interesting the, model yeah we can yeah. We can mess around with its genetics and we don't even feel bad about it. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's good and it's efficient. Okay, so we come to uh, closing up on the show over here. So we have a few minutes to talk about my stuff. Um, so what I study, I am from the, in the Department of Chemistry and we do a little bit of what we call, we look at, at molecules, but in this case, the molecule that we look at is, or that I look at is DNA, okay? Mm -hmm. So... Adam was talking about chromosomes. So uh, well, when we look at DNA, uh, it's kind of zooming in from the chromosome because the chromosome is like folded and, you know, gets uh, this X shape. So imagine you're taking that and you're taking a very powerful microscope and you're zooming, zooming, zooming until you get to the base pairs, until you get to see the DNA. Okay. So what I study is called interstrand DNA crosslinks. So... I want you to imagine a magnet on a fridge, okay? Mm -hmm. So you can take 
that magnet out of the fridge, separate it anytime you want, okay? Mm -hmm. And it will stick back in, separate it, stick back in, and all of that. That's kind of how DNA can work. Um, so you've probably seen the image of DNA. It's kind of like a helix, looks like a helix, and mm -hmm. it has two strands. And those two strands can separate, and they can come back. They can mm -hmm. separate, and they can come back. Why do we separate? Well, because uh, we want stuff to reproduce, mm -hmm. okay? And when we talk about reproduction, we not only talk about when babies are being made, but just your cells um, need to regenerate mm -hmm. or- Duplicating themselves. Yeah, replicating, or um, you know, if you get a sunburn, you need new skin cells and a lot of other stuff that we need to mm -hmm. uh, regenerate. Also, there is this thing called transcription, where mm -hmm. we have to form proteins. And with that, you also have to separate the two strands of DNA, convert them into RNA, which Adam mentioned, and then this then, moves on to form proteins that our body needs. So because of that, um, you know, we, this um, happens quite often that the two strands of DNA separate. Mm -hmm. Now, going back to the magnet on our fridge, what if I put a drop of super glue into the magnet and I stick it back into the fridge? I think your mom would be really mad. My mother <laughs> will be really mad, yes. Why? Because when she tries to take it out, what's gonna happen? Either the magnet is gonna break. break. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, we're gonna get the coating from the fridge. Yeah, the paint from the fridge will peel off. Yeah. Yeah, we'll peel off. Done or, that one. And then, yeah. or you're gonna leave a mess in there. Uh huh. Regardless, there's going to it's be something in there. So that's what crossings do to the DNA. Okay. It forms this kind of bond. Oh. We call it a bond, where the two strands of DNA cannot separate. So they're stuck okay. too tightly together. They stuck. They're stuck. They're literally bonded. They're. Uh, mm -hmm. They're bonded to each other so they can separate. So then imagine you're wanting to replicate a cell or something. So you're going, 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 separating the stuff, and then ah, you mm -hmm. hit the cross link <laughs> and you're stalled. Yeah. You cannot f go further. So there's two things that can happen. Either the cell can repair it, but that requires some energy, mm -hmm. or the cell is just going to say, I quit, and <laughs> it's going to die. Wow, mm. seems dramatic. <laughs> a little bit dramatic, yeah. <laughs> but that's that's what happens. Yeah. So, how how what does this even mean? Some of the chemotherapy drugs work mm -hmm. that way. They form crosslinks. They bond the two strands of DNA, oh. and that's how we're able to kill the cancer cells because cancer cells reproduce at a faster rate than our normal cells. Okay. However, they're not specific, and that's why there are a lot of side effects. Yeah. With chemotherapy drugs. Mm -hmm. uh. So that's one way that we look that we have crosslinks. Another way, um, it has been recently thought of that naturally occurring crosslinks. We we have a lot of damage that occurs in our body naturally, mm -hmm. and there have been some crosslinks that are that have been detected in our body. That then people are starting to think maybe that's one of the reasons why we age. Oh, because our cells are starting to die. Wow. Wow. So. Now here comes the best part. You're probably thinking, <laughs> oh my gosh, you found the youth of, uh, yeah, the, the fountain, fountain of, of youth. youth. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, we can develop a more, a better strategic chemotherapy yeah. drug. Yeah. The problem is that we don't know how crosslink get, get repair. Oh. And one mm. of the reasons why we don't know that is one, crosslinks are formed with chemotherapy drugs. Okay. Chemotherapy drugs are kind of expensive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh. Um, two, uh, they form very in very low yields. So we can only produce 
a very small amounts of it. Mm -hmm. There's another way uh, that you can make a big amount of crossings, but this requires 10, 12 step synthesis. Yeah. That then a bio, you will be asking a biologist to do that. Mm -hmm. And because biologists are the ones that study repair. Why? Because we need different technologies and different yeah. specializations. And it's not and like so you can grow it because it doesn't It doesn't, it doesn't grow. Exactly, because <laughs> if you try to grow it, then you're like stuck, then your cell will die. Yeah. Right. Everything will die. So um, what I do is I try to, I am developing a cross-sync that is fast and cheap to produce mm -hmm. that then biologists can use. Uh, this is a, a kind of developing a recipe for labs so that they can study mm -hmm. um, DNA repair and how we can repair that. That's awesome. Now, when I said uh, we're in chemistry, uh, of course I'm using um, chemistry knowledge uh, to form this specific bond. And you know, then we look at, okay, well, if I put these two things at this certain distance or whatever, then it's gonna give me the better yield and stuff. And so this in two steps, it gives us about 90% of yield in just one day and yeah. that it's like easy recipe yeah. uh -huh. it's kind of cool how like you know that's clearly chemistry to me but oh, yeah but i think it sounds so biology it sounds but very biology yeah. to me also yeah and i i think that's like a common theme in chemistry that we mm -hmm. cross over to other fields yeah. so much more because i could say you know i study into cross links yeah <laughs> i could say i can form cross links that involve hydrosome chemistry. And to you biologists, you'll be like, okay, what does that even mean? <laughs> right, but to a chemist, you'll be like, oh yeah, I know, you're form forming a bond between an aldehyde and, a, yeah. and this other thing. So you, then, you know, but I can say crosslinks, it stalls this, this, and that, and then it can eventually lead off to uh, move on to a biochemistry or a biology lab so we can study the repair. Cool. So. Yeah, that's so are you forming crosslinks in like specific areas that you know exactly where it's going to go? Or do you say like, here's a region of DNA and I know that I'm going to form like a bunch. For my this. days of recording in the basement of Kramer Hall. <laughs> to becoming one of the most respected brands in all of student media. <laughs> you are listening to KCLU Columbia 88.1 FM, a free service. MSA GPC. Not to interrupt Very your question, exciting. but that All was right. pretty good. That was cute. <laughs> that was cute. Uh, yeah. So, uh, what? What? Repeat the question. So, do you know exactly where the crosslink is going to form, or is it a little bit random? So, it's a little bit random, but not really. Okay. So, we don't use uh, DNA in the way that you guys would use it. Um, so, we've developed not we, but like scientists um, have developed a way of getting of synthesizing DNA. So pretty much I just uh, put like a sequence that I want um, and I use pretty short sequences and I tell someone in a lab um, at a company and I said, this is what I want. And so that we're, yep. they're able to put in uh, that specific sequence okay. and then they send it to me. And then I do, so we have some knowledge. Um, actually the Nobel Prize of Chemistry last year, if you remember was about DNA. One of the winners, um, was someone yeah. whose paper oh. was uh, Lin Linhall. Um, he's oh. from from Sweden. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you first get to the lab, if you put it, get put in into these type of projects, um, the first paper that my boss asks you to read is mm -hmm. his. Mm -hmm. 
cool. Um, it's <laughs> about know. a basic sites. Yeah. So when I when I saw that that name, I was like, oh my gosh, I know that. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah. So we we kind of. I mean, we have. Um, DNA models that we can see and we're kind of guesstimate, okay, maybe this and the bond might form here and okay. that would not like mess up the shape of DNA too much. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So that's kind of, I mean, we, we can like move around and see like, okay, maybe this one, maybe that one. Okay. Um, and that's one of the, one of the parts of the research, like how far can we push this crosslink effect hmm. uh, cool. in, in the sequence. So. Very neat. Yeah. That's, that's really awesome. Too. Yeah. I've always right. wondered what you guys did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice to meet all of you. Yay. <laughs> um, yeah. So with that, we're closing up on our show. I hope you liked uh, hearing what we do and what we're passionate about because we spent a lot of hours lot of in the lab. <laughs> uh, and as you can tell, we, we, we really like what we do in we all think that it will save the world one day. So, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. So with that, we sign off. You were listening to The Big Electron on KCO 88.1 FM.